and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Slade and Miles Out to Sea, which is part of the uh, title track of the new Grapefruit Cherry Red box set, Miles Out to Sea, The Roots of British Power Pop. 1969 to 1975 and as always i've got david wells here who curated and conceived that set uh, as always a huge welcome david thanks jason thanks for inviting me so we started off with slade this really is a taking the melody of the mid-60s but really adding some sort of guitar power to it do you think that that helps to define or or shape the power pop sound yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've never been particularly happy with the phrase power pop, but, it, you know, it is what it is, as they say, we're stuck with it. And uh, to me, the, the uh, even though the, um, the terminology isn't that uh, satisfactory, um, it's a classic pop sound, really. As you say, the mid-60s pop sound fed into uh, more sophisticated studios in the early 70s, but retaining that, that kind of melodicism of, of the mid-60s. So, yeah, Slade, that's from the album Old New, Borrowed and Blue. And I think they tried to branch out a little bit there because obviously they were known for their kind of rabble-rousing hit singles at that point. And Old New and Borrowed and Blue has some um, different influences there. Uh, and, and yeah, to me, uh, when the lights are out on the same album, are classic power pop songs, really. There's a story behind that track, isn't there? Is it to do with something about them being at the Winterland in San Francisco? They were in San Francisco and they had this kind of um, visiting British rock stars in America party. And the lyrics refer to the drummer, Don Powell, who seems to be known as Bombhead within the group, um, uh, swinging like Tarzan um, <laughs> from one side of the room to the other. And uh, obviously it inspired Noddy Holder and Jim Lee to write that song. Not a single, probably a little bit too sophisticated to be a single, but uh, like I say, a, a classic track as far as I'm concerned. And it must have been fondly held by Jim Lee because he... Uh... Uh, did a version of his brother Frank uh, a, a little bit later, didn't he? That's right, the Dummies, yeah. They they revisited a couple of Slade songs, like I say, the, the ones I just mentioned, really, Miles Out to Sea and uh, When the Lights Are Out. And they also had a great single called Didn't You Used to Be You, which should have been a massive hit, but uh, um, I think it was mainly Frank Lee and then Jim kind of joined in to help his brother out or whatever, but uh, those singles are pretty good. I think we are including one of them on a, a kind of late 70s power pop compilation that Cherry Red are doing later on, in, probably next year now. As always with this set, you uh, shine a light on groups like Slade, who everyone knows, but you also cover bands that, that people may not know of. And I wasn't familiar with this next group, so we have Starry Eyed and Laughing going down. And I heard it and I thought, ooh, this has got a bit of a feel of the birds here. Oh, yeah, they were complete... Uh... Uh, where, where some bands were kind of influenced by them, it was more like a case of demonic possession for them. Um, they'd previously been in, uh, the main guys had previously been in a school band together called The Chimes, with a Y instead of an I, obviously. And uh, they were complete Roger McGuinn obsessives, and you can hear it in uh, Going Down, which is from their first album for CBS. As the band admit, they were either 10 years too late or five years too early. They kind of missed the boat on, on, on both the original 60s power um, uh, bands like The Birds and the late 70s kind of uh, power pop revival. Um, so, yeah, they they were the right band at the wrong time, really, I think. How much material did they release in the mid-70s? Two albums, um, but they've got a lot of outtakes from that time. Um, and, yeah, that most of their stuff is of a very high quality, even the outtakes. Oh, 
term power pop pilot are one of those groups that seem to fit well into that terminology we have just a smile and that's a a song that was one of their early releases but actually gained favor with a remix a few years after that didn't they that's right yes they initially recorded just a smile produced by alan parsons as well before the alan parsons project so it's got a nice crisp production but they were unknown at that point it was only when um magic was the follow-up and that was a hit and then obviously they had January but um, it's quite funny to see at the time they were they were called not the new Beatles but the new Badfinger so power pop the term power pop wasn't really in in vogue at that point it wasn't really until the late 70s but they do have that kind of lineage and uh, that kind of double time hand claps whatever yeah again excellent songwriters and they were possibly unfashionable at the time, as any band who had big hit records, really. One of them had been in uh, the Bay City Rollers as well. In fact, two of them had been. So they probably yeah, uh, weren't loved by the critics at the time. But these things, um, th- their songs endured really well. Absolutely. And when I spoke to David Payton, they didn't really seem to get the critical due that such finely crafted songs, which were just exceptionally produced, deserved and as you say with the passage of time you can listen to all those tracks i I think at the time there's a lot of snobbishness especially in the music music papers the weekly music papers the nma i used to love reading the nma but um they used to to take the mickey out of all these bands they they were a rock um, paper 
And uh, in those days, they had a lot of influence over sort of British record buying public. Um, so I think Pilot, like I say, David Payton and Billy Lyle have both been with the Bay City Rollers. And I, I think at that point, that was kind of looked down on by the rock newspapers. But nobody really cares about that now. In fact, we did apply for a couple of uh, Bay City Roller tracks for this compilation because some of their stuff does fit the power pop genre, but um, we, we weren't successful in getting them. But uh, So, so I, I think these days, 40, 50 years later, nobody really cares about critical respectability or anything that that, that we used to have to uh, contend with in, in the early 70s. So they, they're just timeless pop songs now.
now we have Rocking Horse, biggest gossip in town. And this is a real throwback to the sort of early and mid-60s Mersey sound. And you've got two veterans of that scene, Billy Kinsley and Jimmy Campbell. That's right, yeah, Billy Kinsley and the late Jimmy Campbell, who was uh, an excellent songwriter, uh, wrote songs for people like Billy Fury and Stella Black, but never really quite got the, the acclaim he deserved as a band leader. He had a 23rd turn off as well, and before that, the Kirbys. But in, in the early 70s, the two of them got together, Kinsley and, and Campbell, and decided to write and record songs that were influenced by the original sounds that, that had inspired Mersey Beat and the Mersey Beats themselves. Um, so this has kind of got a girl group type sound to it but it was picked up by um by greg shaw in the late 70s i mean greg shaw the late greg shaw did more than anybody else to to popularize the term power pop with his uh, magazine who put the bump later bump and he released it uh, he issued it in 1979 on his, his label vox so even at that point late 70s rocking horse were kind of inducted into that power pop framework and this again another classic two and a half minute pop song that didn't really get anywhere and I can imagine in, in 1971, people would have heard it and thought, what is this? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit in with what else is around. And that's really like the, um, the impetus behind this compilation. Bands who didn't quite fit in at the time, and now you can see they're part of a lineage. It's interesting listening to Biggest Gossip in Town in the context of this set, because this song in particular is a real throwback. And when you compare that to the early 70s, when you've got more progressive acts you've potentially got a bit of a harder stronger baseline things had moved on i think so i mean i've always said the difference between the 60s and the 70s really is that the bigger bands in the 60s were the best bands and i don't think that's necessarily true of the 70s mm. that there were a lot of people still making good pop records but they were kind of overlooked at the time because they didn't fit in, as you say, you've got the progressive rock boom, you've got heavy metal, you've got those kind of earnest singer-songwriters strumming a guitar and singing sort of very personal songs, and you've got the kind of the bubblegum pop charts, and, and these guys were making timeless music that really wasn't of that time, as it were.
And so now we have Love Polacco and Girl on the Train, which again harks back to an earlier beat scene. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we obviously we just heard Rocking Horse. Uh, and they were kind of inspired by that, that early 60s sound. The Liverpool Echo album is purely a pastiche of early Beatles, really. In fact, it's very similar to, to what um, Neil Lennon would do four or five years later in The Rattles. So, so yeah, Girl on the Train uh, is a track from the Liverpool Echo album. It was released by the Spark Label in late 1973. Uh, and it was made by a couple of the guys who'd been in Mandrake Paddle Steamer, Martin Briley and Brian Engel, who'd obviously uh, who'd also been in in Prowl, who'd, who'd just done the Pale Green Vauxhall Driving Man single, which is kind of a, a bit of a cult thing nowadays. So yes, they they hit upon this idea of basically taking old Beatles, early Holly songs, and kind of breaking them up and creating something new out of those components. Yeah, <laughs> one of them said that Spot generally thought it was kind of um, old classic recordings uh, made in 63, 64. They didn't understand it was a pastiche even, didn't know what to do with it. And they, <laughs> the two musicians were paid £25 each for, for, for writing, uh, recording, and then handing it over to Spark. So there you go, 50 quid it cost Spark to get this done. <laughs> it is quite similar. I, I was going to say, yeah, it, it is kind of very similar to... Rubber Soul and before then, the kind of early Beatles sound, really. And they were quite deliberate in that. So they wrote and recorded it very quickly. Girl on the Train, actually, was inspired by Brian Engel's actress girlfriend, um, who was in uh, one of the James Bond films, Suvanna. And bizarrely, she shared a flat with George Martin's daughter. So, so, so there is a Beatles connection there. It's a bit of a torturous one. But um, yeah, again, you know, people don't care about the fact it was a pastiche 50 years later, um, it's just again another really good, strong pop song. Every time I see her, she's reading her magazine. I watch her, but she pretends that she can't be seen. Thank you. 
So next we have a group that are associated with the 60s, but carried on into the early 70s. So this was kind of around 71, where it was that period where they were having two hats on the move. And it That's was... right. I think they really wanted to drop the move, but they kept having hit records. And, you know, there's one thing musicians do love, and that's being successful. So they carried on making basically throwaway pop singles, which still had the old-fashioned drummy Beatles edge to it. So they were looking to launch Electric Light Orchestra, but... Uh, their last three singles, Tonight, Chinatown, which is what we're about to hear, and California Man, they don't sound like throwaway singles. They're as good as anything that came out at the time. You say something in the sleeve notes that this, ironically, was one of the favourites of Carl Wayne, even though he wasn't in the group. That's right. Carl Wayne, obviously, was in the band for the first two or three years and, and sang most of their hits, although I think he was gradually edged out. He, he had a kind of a more vocabulary edge himself, but... Uh, yeah, he did say, I mean, obviously he's no longer with us, but he did say that Chinatown was actually his favourite move 45, even though he hadn't actually appeared on it. He'd left the band a couple of years before then.
now we have Rotten to the Core. Don't let me wait too long. So this is a George Harrison track, isn't it? It's a George Harrison song. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, George Harrison. He he had the uh, the album Living in the Material World out and decided not to release it as a single. So just like in the old Beatles days when when bands would wait for the new Beatles album to drop so that they could cover something and maybe get a cheap hit single. Uh, this was recorded by Jimmy Edwards and Linton Guest. Linton Guest had been in a love affair. Jimmy Edwards, um, he, he was around for a long while. Um, he was in The Neat Change, who did a single for Decca. And then he was involved with Jimmy Percy, I believe, and even the band Flintlock, he was um, part of that. He was working oh. as a songwriting production team um, for for the Pie and Dawn labels. So he recorded a couple of glam singles, The Washington Flies and Stumpy, but um, it covered this song, and you can hear that it's got hit potential, but like I say, George Hasn didn't release it as a single. And what really strikes me about this is how close to Alex Chilton, the um, you know, big star, that the lead vocal is. Uh, there's also, again, a slight um, Beatles connection in that the drummer is Steve Holly, who went on to be in Wings. Yeah. The group name is Rotten to the Cost. Was that a one-off and, and, and linked to it, Apple? Yeah, that was the only time they really... Um, they issued anything under that name. I can only assume it's a it's a pun on a, on the Apple organisation, which is kind of falling apart at that point. This is 1973, so I uh, sadly, as I say, um, Jimmy Edwards is no longer with us. But I would guess it was some kind of uh, making fun of the Apple connection. Oh, 
Next we have Nimbo and Forget Her. This is a it's a really strong song, but it, it was a B-side, wasn't it? Yeah, the Maisie Jones was on the other side. Two great songs, again, very commercial, or they would have been at any point other than 1971. Yeah, they did a second single, which is a cover of a Bee Gees song, which I'm not so keen on, but, but this is a double-sided gem, really. They were led by a guy called um, John Wilson, who was the brother of... Um, Marie Wilson, you remember Just What I Always Wanted? Mm. So yeah, he was quite a bit old. He, he later wrote songs for Cliff Richard as well. But this is very kind of Badfinger-influenced. If you can have something that's Badfinger-influenced rather than Beatles-influenced, I mean, there's not much difference, obviously. So yes, yeah, um, getting a, a Pie single. It came out in October 71. And, and to be honest, Pie weren't really having hits by that point. They lost the kinks. They were more of a kind of mainstream, middle-of-the-road type label by then. And I can imagine they probably signed Nimbo and thought, well, what are we going to do with them? But uh, yeah, again, this is a, a, a single that, that should have got more acclaim than it did at the time. And am I right that a couple of the members, there is a bit of a, a link-up? Yeah, two of them became joined uh, Tommy Evans and Bob Jackson in the Dodgers later on, about 76, 77. So yeah, again, there's a there's a link. To be honest, almost all these songs there seems to be a link with other uh, more well-known bands. It sometimes feels like there's maybe a couple of hundred people in the British music industry in the late sixties, early seventies making uh, making records under different aliases, pseudonyms, or whatever, and they all seem to be connected with each other. Now we have a group that obviously are very well known. It's Steelers Wheel and Go As You Please. But this was a few years after Stuck in the Middle. 
That's right. The first uh, the first Sivas World album had some great songs on it, Late Again, Stuck in the Middle with You. And and at that point it was Joe Rafferty uh, sorry, Joe Rafferty and Joe Egan who who wrote the songs. Uh Joe Rafferty left the band but when Stuck in the Middle was was a late hit, then he, he rejoined but the rest of the band had to be sacked and it was just him and Joe Egan and Session Man after that. So this was like uh, on their third album, which is Right or Wrong, which is kind of pretty much ignored. I think by that point, Joe Rafferty had had enough of the music industry and he didn't record for two or three years after that until um, Baker Street. So this, again, is very kind of jangly and birdsy. But again, people will say, stick this real. They weren't a power pop band. Well, they weren't, but they still recorded power pop friendly stuff. And, and this is one of those most tracks, really. And the lyrics for Go As You Please relate to uh, Jerry's brief time in the civil service? Yeah, he'd been um, a civil servant briefly um, after leaving school, but um, he had quite a few jobs, to be honest, before joining the Humble Bums. So, yeah, this is this was about his, his boredom at working in the civil service. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of us can relate to that, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
I've heard of Byzantium for when I spoke to Chas Chanko. All right. But we have now You Made Me Stand Up Straighter, but that was later, was it? Yeah, he just left. The second album that Byzantium made was, in the words of one of the other band members, um, Byzantium, Go Country and, and Meet Grateful Dead. And that wasn't really his kind of thing. And he left the band after that. Mm. They put out a, a kind of self, uh, self-financed self 99 copies only album to try and get a new recording deal and new management as well. It didn't really work but they were invited by Atlantic to make to cut four tracks and maybe get a deal with them this is one of those four tracks and for some reason Atlantic heard it and said no thanks <laughs> but again very kind of power pop friendly again the Beatles bad finger hybrid really um and um again staggering to think that you know a record company could hear this and say no that doesn't interest us at all Octopus and Rainchild. So this the heart of Octopus, Paul and Nigel Griggs? Yeah, the Griggs brothers. Um, Paul went on to join Guys and Dolls um, as Nigel um, joined Split Ends. But again, it's not really about um, what they became as, as what they were at the time. They, uh, they were signed by Larry Page in 68, 68-69, uh, uh, having previously recorded Beebe's Flower Shop um, as the Cortinas. They thought that was a bit outdated. Uh, changed the name to Octopus. 
Uh, and then they started work on the album in January 1970. It came out 15 months later. Um, so again, one of those things where, you know, the Beatles were still going when they started recording it. But in April 1971, nobody was interested in that kind of sound, um, allegedly anyway. Uh, certainly weren't having hit records with it. So, uh, yeah, again, the right band, but not at the right time or place. And uh, Restless Night is a, is a really nice album. Drain Child is, is a gorgeous track. And then after this period, they had a, a little bit of time being the public face of Kincaid, uh, John Carter's. Yeah, John Carter famously didn't like touring, didn't want the front records that he made. He, he, he records something under a different alias every month almost. And then if a record was a hit, as Dreams of Tenny Penny was for Kincaid, then he would continue to record under that name for the next year or two. But as I say, he, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't go out and publicise stuff. And because uh, the Kincaid single was on Penny Farthing, which was Larry Page's name, uh, which is Larry Page's uh, new new label, Page had worked with Octopus, so he called them up and asked if they would front um, front the record on on TV, etc. So they did that for a year or so, but eventually John didn't really get a, another hit after Dreams of Ten a Penny. And he went on to First Classes instead, who were also on our compilation with another classic, Beach Baby. The more kind of Beach Boys end of power pop, really, with those kind of fantastic harmonies. But uh, anyway, that's a long way from Octopus themselves. Um, and yeah, Rainchild is a great song.
So next we have Pagliaro, Some Sing, Some Dance. This was a case where you had someone based in abroad but coming over to uh, Britain? Yeah, Michel Pagliaro uh, was based in Montreal, French-Canadian. He, he sang French language. Um, he, he was quite well known locally, but there's a limit as to how far recording in French is going to get you in the in the rock world in the early 70s especially. So Pi in the UK picked up on Love New Ain't Easy. They brought him over to, to England for nine months or so. Uh, and he was based over here. I actually remember him being on, on the Golden Shot, uh, Bob Monkhouse's show. And he also appeared on Top of the Pops to promote it. It was a minor hit, got number 31, I think. And then he recorded the album in this country with British session musicians at Abbey Road and Apple Studios. And this is the, the kind of follow-up to Love New Ain't Easy, the hit. Well, one of the follow-ups, actually, I think there's Rain Showers as well, but uh, some sing, some some dance. It's amazing how many of these songs sound more like George Harrison than they do either Lennon or McCartney. And again, some, some sing, some dance. Sounds like the best record that George Harrison never made. But so, so yeah, we, we are we are kind of um, taking one or two liberties in saying Pagliaro. Obviously, he wasn't English, but this is a British record. that It was made in this country. Eventually, Pi lost interest and, and he just went back to Canada. So he's still a cult name, really, but um, I, I do think that um, the album he recorded in England is, is the best work that he did. I love you. 
So no set which has got the term British power pop, certainly in the late 60s to early 70s, would be complete without Badfinger. We now have the exceptional No One Knows, which was from the Wish You Were Here album. So this was the period where the group had gone over to Warner Brothers. That's right. Um, their, their manager um, had signed a deal in the UK, Apple was kind of collapsing and their manager took them over to Warner Brothers, but he signed a contract which allegedly brought them a lot of money, but it meant that they had to record two albums a year. And it became a situation where they had to record too often, really. But the irony is that their Warner Brothers stuff is really good, but it doesn't sire any hit singles in this country. Uh, and people in this country, if they're listening to Badfinger, it would probably be No Matter What, Come and Get It, or Day After Day, something like that. But they did continue to be um, very productive after they moved to Warners. Obviously, the story ends pretty tragically, but um, no one knows, again, is a really strong strong original song. It is, and it, it just seems that all the label and contractual difficulties was one of the core factors of not getting the success that they deserved and and obviously it all ended very badly it did end badly obviously there's a lot of ins and outs of that i think pete Hound was struggling with his own mental health at that point anyway according to other band members but obviously it's a very kind of um, um disturbing story so there isn't really much else to say about the band other than that, you know, that their story ends in a terrible manner. Unfortunately, uh, we do have the music left at least.
Shape of the Rain here, I'll be there from the uh, the classic album Riley Riley Wood and Waggett. This is an album that has been uh, repackaged and re-released by uh, the Cherry Red family, isn't it? That's right. I did it a year or two ago. Um, got some fantastic um, home demos from the main songwriter in the band Keith Riley. A couple of those are on on this compilation, but uh, on this occasion, I went with the uh, a track from the album. Um, I'll be there. Sheffield, Chesterfield area band, really. I don't know why they were given the title of Riley Riley Wooden Waggett as their comp- uh, as their album. It, it, as people have said, it just sounds like a firm of solicitors. But the songs are really strong. Again, it's got that kind of um, birdish, chiming, um, back of guitar on it. And this is one of the strongest songs on that album. But yeah, I, I agree, it's a classic album. Uh, it's now highly collectible, of course, but um, didn't attract too much attention at the time, sadly. Do you think that was because, although it was an RCA, it was on the sort of rarely heard imprint Neon? I, I think Neon was considered to be an underground label and it was promoted as such. But I, I think that if they had a hit single, um, it would have been a different story. But um, there's a lot of good music from the early 70s that wasn't successful. So, yeah, I, I am of the opinion that it should have been on the main RCA label. But uh, maybe we were just clutching at straws to say, oh, it wasn't successful because it was on Neon. Maybe maybe it just wouldn't have been successful anyway. I mean, RCA at that point, they were still saying lots of Elvis Presley records. But um, at that point, they were probably more interested in, I think they just signed David Bowie at that point. I think he, just, he was just recording Hunky Dory. And I, I think sometimes with these labels, they put all their eggs in one basket in terms of promoting one or two acts. And I think Shape of the Rain must have been difficult for them to promote.
And our final track is Brinsley Swartz and uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding here, a group that had quite a genesis from the uh, mid, mid-60s mid and, and were still going by uh, the mid-70s and, and were seen as formative in, in that pub rock field. That's right. I think nowadays people think Brinsley Swartz, what a band. They, <laughs> they weren't very successful at the time. And even What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding, people say, yeah, that's an absolute classic, which it is. But it was only really after Elvis Costello recorded it that mm. um, it, it got a wider audience. Again, you know, Nick Lowe went on to uh, to be a cool figure uh, after joining Stiff, after producing a lot of those early Stiff singles as well as recording in his own right. Ian Gorm was also uh, part of Princey Schwartz, of course. But yeah, this was a single in June 74, but um, yeah, it wasn't successful and, and their albums weren't successful either. They they had four or five. Eventually, United Artists just dropped them in early 75 and um, they kind of splintered. And like I say, it's only in retrospect that they've been dubbed this kind of classic early 70s band. There's a great quote from Ian Gorm on, on my website that talked about when uh, Nicolo and, and Ian were in their commune in Beaconsfield and were in the kitchen. And uh, he talks about, one night we wrote six songs together. We're talking about being Lennon McCartney and we were low gone. But then we both said, I'm fed up with all of this. Instead, you'll have free and I'll have free. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ian says, guess which one got a million dollar check from the bodyguard? It's just the way things are. He won't remember this. There was a lot of dope smoking going on. <laughs> yeah, um, obviously they, they were launched in this massive hype and I think after that they were more rootsy, more low-key. As you say, they lived uh, they lived communally together. I think it became a bit of a laugh almost. I know uh, Ian Gomez said that you know they became part of the burgeoning pub rock movement and that was purely because the fact that petrol shortages meant it was um, very expensive to get up from one end of the country to the other so they all kind of um, played in London so a lot of these things are just down to luck you know and, and <laughs> with the bodyguard yeah well sometimes you get lucky sometimes you get unlucky you'd never think would you you wouldn't think at the time that a song would become ultimately over the years so successful no there was nothing like i say it wasn't that people um what made it a hit in 1974 or anything like that what what intrigues me about this again is is kind of not so much that the song is great obviously but again it's got that chiming birds guitar all the way through it yeah. which people tend to overlook uh and even when elvis costello remade it it was kind of like a a late 70s new wave thing so yeah you have no uh you have no conception about what will be successful i remember being shocked when um i saw marmalades i see the rain suddenly on <laughs> On a, on a TV advert with like Hollywood superstars, um, you know, acting in the advert, and you think, where have they taken that from? Why do they think that's um, that's something that represents what they're trying to do? So yeah, there, there's no rhyme or reason to it. As I say, you, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you get unlucky, and um, that's the way it goes. Um, sadly, so miles out to see the roots of British pop, 1969 to 1975. That's out on the 22nd of July. So um, another great set. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, very kind. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye.
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.